Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our scripture reading today is going to be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. We're actually going to be focusing on verse 11 this morning, but I want to read it all so that we hear it in context. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Hebrews chapter 4 beginning on page 1002. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning... At verse 1, this is the very Word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed... For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask that He would grant us the grace to hear His voice this morning. Father God, as we come before You now, we come to hear Your living and active Word. Father God, I pray that You would not allow us to harden our hearts this morning but rather that You would grant to us the grace we need to hear Your voice. Father, open our hearts and our minds to to understand and to receive Your Word and to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you, what are you striving for? What is it that consumes your energy? What is it that you spill out your life for? What is it that you are pursuing with all zeal? That's what this text is about. In this this text, we are are being commanded to to strive. And that in and of itself tells us that, that striving is not a bad thing. 
In, in our day and age, we, we tend to think of it that way. We, we tend to, to think of, of striving, especially even in the church, as, as somehow contrary to grace, somehow contrary to the good life. But the author is calling us to, to strive. Striving itself is, is not bad. There is no virtue in a, a lack of, of desire or in a, a lack of ambition. There is no virtue in sloth. There is no virtue in what Piper calls wasting your life, spending it on nothing, or maybe worse, spending it on trifles. There is no virtue in wasting your life. Just think of how Paul described himself. Paul, at the end of of Colossians chapter 1, described himself as one who toils and struggles. The word is actually agonizing. He, He agonizes in the pursuit of his mission. Elsewhere, he describes himself as as one who trains like an elite elite athlete. He beats his body and makes it his slave that he might complete the mission that had been entrusted to him. So much so that he could say later in that same letter, I worked harder than any of them. Not boasting of himself, but boasting of the work that God was doing in and through him. We see the same in Jesus himself. Jesus devoted himself so tirelessly to the mission that he had been given that his family thought he was out of his mind. His family actually planned an intervention so that they could take custody of him and and save him from himself. And of course, we know that ultimately, for the joy that was set before him, he ran the race that was marked out for him. We know that that he was obedient against all pressures, against all temptations. He was obedient even unto death. He literally gave his life in the pursuit of his mission. Striving is not bad. The question is, what are we striving for? The French philosopher Pascal once said that for all men, the, the object is the same. All men seek happiness, he said. In fact, he went so far as to say that the soul does not take the least step except towards this end. All men, in all of their actions, seek happiness. It's, it's, it's part of the way that we were wired. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We, we seek that which we think is to our good. We, think, we seek that which we, we think will ultimately be to our, our blessing. The question is, what is that for you. What are you seeking? What are you striving for? We all know that money doesn't buy happiness. But I heard someone say recently that we all want to learn that by personal experience. We all believe that while money doesn't buy happiness, it is essential to our well-being. Just a little bit more would make us just a little bit Happier. That's one of the lies that I have struggled to resist all of my life. It's one of those lies that I tend to believe. I have to be constantly reminded of the, the truth. Maybe it's not material possessions. Maybe, maybe it's accomplishment or, or the praise of, of men. Maybe what, what you seek is, is just simply the, the pleasures and the comforts of, of life or, or the power to protect the pleasures and the comforts that you already have. 
Maybe you believe that your happiness is bound up in relationships, and so what you want more than anything else, that which you pour yourself out for, is, is that ideal family or those perfect friendships. What is it that you are striving for? That's what this verse is about. Here, the author is telling us what we ought to be striving after. And he he tells us in verse 11, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's what we ought to be striving for. That's the object after which we ought to be zealously seeking. That is is the object that that ought to be the, the, the goal of our earnest pursuit. We ought to be seeking striving, working to enter that rest. And so to understand exactly what that means, we need to at least answer three questions. We we first need to understand what is this rest that he is talking about. We need to understand what it means to enter that rest. And we need to understand what it means to strive to enter that rest. So let's let's start with the first question. What is the rest that he has been talking about. It's, it's actually the rest he's been talking about since the, the middle of, of chapter 3. You could probably tell from the reading this morning that, that we were kind of picking up in the middle of a conversation because he, he refers back to things that he has already said. He, he refers back to the psalm, actually, that he quotes in the, the middle of, of chapter 3. In the, in the middle of chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95, calling on uh, his readers not to harden their hearts when they hear the voice of God, because it says, if you do, you will be like that generation that was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, that generation that though they were brought out of Egypt by God, nevertheless failed to enter into God's rest. A rest which was typified by the promised land. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, the verse that he, he quotes here in the middle of, of chapter 4. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we are told that after God completed His work of creation, on the seventh day, He rested. He rested not because He was tired, not because He was exhausted. God doesn't tire. God doesn't get weary. He is the everlasting God. And yet, He rested. He rested because His work was complete, because things were as they were supposed to be. And so he rested and he invited mankind to live in that rest. But you know the story. You know we didn't abide there long. It wasn't long before mankind and our first parents rebelled against God. They, they took the, uh, the fruit of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that forbidden fruit, that, that fruit that they were commanded not to eat. And they, they brought sin and death into the world. And we have been living under the curse of that choice ever since. We've been living in a creation subjected to futility, a, a creation that is no longer as it's supposed to be, a, a creation that no longer knows God's shalom, a creation that is broken, a creation that is defiled, a, a creation that is, that is dreadfully out of whack. But God, in His great mercy, did not see fit to leave us with no hope. But rather, even as he pronounced the curse, he made a promise. He he made a promise that he would undo the works of the devil. He made a promise that he would put right all that we had broken. That through the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed, his kingdom would be demolished, and mankind would be reconciled to himself. 
And we see that promise. We, we see the fulfillment of that promise. We, we see a foreshadow, a, a glimpse of it. And the promise of a land to a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur, out of Babylon. He calls Abraham to himself and says, You are going to be mine, and I am going to bless you, and I am going to give you a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where you will know my perfect peace and provision, a land where my Sabbath will again be experienced. That's the rest that the author is is talking about here. The the rest that was foreshadowed in the promised land. The promised land wasn't it. The, The promised land wasn't the fulfillment. That's what the author makes clear when he says, listen, when Joshua led them into the land, he wasn't giving them the rest that was promised. That was but a taste. That was that was but a glimpse. But even that generation knew, we're we're told, that they were looking forward to something better. They were looking forward to a city not made with human hands. They were looking forward to dwelling in God's kingdom. It's what that song that we sang earlier today was all about, Psalm 67. It's why we rejoice to know that God is coming to reign as king. Because in His kingdom... Notice what it says. In, in His kingdom, love and, and, and peace and, and righteousness will overflow. It's in that kingdom that we will have rest. That's what's been promised to the people of God. That is our hope. Here and now, we experience that in part. We, we get a taste of it. The, the church is, is supposed to be a, a foreshadow, a, a, an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth now. But you don't have to be in the church very long to know that it's not a perfect outpost. We are still sinners and we still sin against one another and we vandalize shalom all the time. And yet we know it a little. We we know something of restored relationship. We we know what it is to be at peace with God, even though our consciences still trouble us when we sin. We, We know what it is to be at peace with ourselves, though we still are weighed down by shame. We know what it is to be at peace with others, though we still break those relationships more often than we care to admit. We know what it is to be at peace with creation, though we still struggle to find the right balance. We we know something of this peace, but the day is coming when we will know God's peace perfectly, when we will have perfect rest in a kingdom of perfect shalom. That is what is promised to us. And the author is saying, with a promise like that, what else should you be striving for? That is what we should be striving for. We should be striving to enter that rest. And when he, when he speaks about entering it, he's not talking simply about our, our experience of it here and now. That, that may be in view. He, he may be talking about trying to experience it as much of it as we can now, but what he's really thinking about, what he, what he really has in mind, is entering it on that last day. That's what he is pointing towards. That is what he is, he is saying. He said, your greatest ambition in this life ought to be to enter that rest on that last day when God calls us all to account. There is a day when God will, will call all people before Him. It's the, it's the scene that, that Jesus describes in, in Matthew 25. The scene when the sheep and the goats all come before Him and he, and he separates them to their eternal destinies. He says, on that day, you want to be counted among those who are known by Jesus. 
You want to be known. You want to be among those who are invited into His rest. And it ought to be your greatest ambition. It ought to be the the focus of all of your striving to make sure you enter on that day. So what does that mean? How exactly do you do that? How, How exactly do you strive to enter that rest? I think we need to be careful at this point because it would be very easy to to mishear what the author is saying. If this was the only verse that you had of the book of Hebrews, it would be very easy to, to misunderstand what he is saying because our natural tendency and our fallen condition is to hear the language of, of striving to enter and think that he's telling us we have to earn it. All right, we need to be good enough. We at least need to do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad so that the, 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 the balance tips in our favor and we get in. But we know that's not right. We know that that can't be what He is imploring us to. We, we know it from the full of Scripture. Because Scripture tells us over and over again that no one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous. No one will be made an heir of that kingdom by works of the law. It simply isn't possible for, for us to, to earn our way in. Even if, we could, even if we could stop sinning right now and obey perfectly for the rest of our lives, we could do nothing to, to make up for the sins we have already committed. It's what Jesus means when He says, even when you have done everything, consider yourself an unprofitable servant. For you have merely done your duty. If your duty is perfect obedience, how can perfect obedience make up for failures that have already occurred? But we, we can't earn our way in. It's, it's why Paul says that all who rely upon works of the law are under a curse. They are under a curse because the law says, abide by everything written in this book. There's no margin. There's, there's, no, there's no grace. There's do this and live. Don't do this and die. That's the way the law works. And by that standard, we are already lost. By that standard, even as we we confess this morning, we are without hope, save in His sovereign mercy. You see, our only hope of salvation is grace. Our, Our only hope of salvation is embodied in Jesus Christ. He is the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is the one who obeyed perfectly even unto death. He is the one who who took the curse that we deserved upon Himself that we might know blessing. He is the one who died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And how do we receive that? How do we enter into that salvation? The, The testimony of Scripture is clear. We enter into that salvation by faith. You've been saved by grace through faith, Paul says. This righteousness that we need to be received into the kingdom of God is the gift of God received by faith. And so what does it look like to strive when you're saved by faith? That's what the author is getting at. That's what what he's calling us to. And I think the answer ought to be clear. But it becomes even more clear when we recognize that that what we are being called to strive after is faith, but faith is not a one-time event in our lives. 
Faith is not something we did once. Maybe when we were five, maybe when we were twelve, maybe sometime after college. Believing on Jesus is not something that we we did once and then we're done with it, but rather it is a new posture, a new orientation towards the King. It It is coming into His fold. It is no longer standing against Him, but now standing with Him as the only one who has any chance of leading us into glory. Faith. Faith is a lifetime. And that's why Paul can speak about walking in the footsteps of faith. That each day, as long as it is called today, we are to put one foot in front of the next, walking as believers, living out of what we profess to believe. That's the striving that we are called to. We are called to strive to walk in the footsteps of faith. We know that. The author himself has made it clear. He has made it clear that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Yes, their unbelief manifests itself in disobedience, but unbelief was the root. That is why that generation in the wilderness did not enter, because they did not believe. They did not walk in the footsteps of faith. And that's why the the author's charge from the very beginning has been not to drift away from Jesus. Do not drift from Him. Consider Him. Set your mind on Him. These are the the repeated commands of the author as He he calls on us to to strive. He's not calling us to strive to, to get into heaven without Jesus. He's calling us to cling to Him in faith as the only hope of salvation that we have. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our resting place. Jesus is the one who can lead us into glory. Jesus is the one who can give us the kingdom. And He is the only one. Therefore, let us cling to Him as our only hope. That's what He's asking. That's what He's he's asking us for. He's, He's asking us to strive to stand firm in faith, not to be moved from the hope of the gospel that we believed. And so the question that you have to ask yourself this morning is simply this. Where are you being tempted to walk in unbelief? Even today, where are you being tempted to walk as if the gospel were not true? Where are you being tempted to live as if Jesus were not actually your Savior? As if the hope that you had in Him were were some vain and trifle thing. Some fleeting hope. Rather than the living hope that He truly is through His resurrection. Where are you being tempted to walk in unbelief? That's the question. Maybe Maybe it's in your marriage. You're being tempted to, to believe that, that you have to control and you have to manipulate and you have to, to, to just work things just right so that your needs are met. Because if you, if you give yourself away, husband, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church and die for her, that could go very badly. Or wife, if, if, if you submit to your husband as unto the Lord and if you make yourself his helper rather than taking the lead yourself, that could go very badly. Or maybe it's 
As a parent, we've, we've talked today the, about the, the joy of raising your, your children, the instruction and discipline of the Lord, but let's be honest, that's hard work. That takes up a lot of your time. That, that cuts into your leisure. That cuts into your recreation. That, that, that cuts you off from your hobbies. It cuts you off from the things you want to do. Do you really want to walk in the footsteps of faith there? And of course the list could go on. Maybe it's with your money. You don't trust Him to to take care of you, and so you're going to do it yourself. You don't trust Him with your sex life, so you're going to do it your way. What is it that you don't trust Him with? Where is it that you're being tempted to walk in the footsteps of unbelief? Ask yourself. Examine your heart because it is precisely at that point that the author is calling on you to strive to enter that rest. That's where you must strive. That's where you must work zealously to believe. We think of faith as doing nothing. In a sense, it is. We, we do nothing. We, we do nothing to earn. But faith is a very hard nothing. Resting is hard. Entrusting ourselves to another is dangerous. Will we do it? Will we walk in the footsteps of unbelief? Or will we walk in the footsteps of faith? That's the question. And so, if that's the challenge, how do we we strive after it? What does working hard towards that end actually look like? And I want to suggest to you that it looks like the ordinary means of grace. I said earlier that the church had been given the ordinances of God. That we might raise up mature disciples. We've been given the word. We've been given the sacraments. We've been given prayer. And in these As we partake of these, as we feast upon these, we are nourished to stand firm in our faith. It's in these that we find that empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. It's as you gather for worship, Rick. It's why it's so important that you are here. It's it's not to, to boost my ego. It's not to make me feel better about having filled chairs. You need to be here. You need to be gathered with the people of God, proclaiming the glory of God, that you might be strengthened to trust Him at those points where you're most tempted not to. And you need to be speaking that truth into one another's lives, that the fellowship that Rodney prayed about, our small groups, we need to be sharing our lives so that we can be strengthening one another. We need to be Devoting ourselves to prayer and not pray that, that God would bless our agenda. That's how we too often pray. Hey God, would you please get on board with what I'm doing here? I'd really like your blessing. But rather, would we, would we pray that, that we would get on board with His agenda? Would we pray that, that He would strengthen us to, to stand firm in our faith, to, to, to have eyes to see Him, to, to have a heart to love Him? To, to know Him and to, to walk in obedience to Him. Would we pray kingdom prayers not just for the church out there, but even for ourselves? That we would be kept in faith by His power. And of course, the table. 
here God has, has given us so graciously a, a tangible meal where we can eat and we can, we can drink to the nourishment of our soul. We come to the table to feast, to, to receive His grace through faith that we might stand firm in faith. This is how we strive. We strive not by trying to do what Jesus has already done, but we strive by making diligent use of the ordinary means of grace that He has set before us. He has said, here is my grace, and here is how you can have it. And we run off and we dig for ourselves a broken cistern, seeking water it cannot hold. We strive by returning again and again and again to the fountain of living water that is ours in Christ and that is poured out to us in the ordinary means of grace. So let us be people who strive. Let us be people who strive to feast upon the grace of our King because we know He is a King who will not fail to lead us to rest. And because He is that King, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your grace. And we ask, Father, strengthen us to stand firm in faith that we, that we might be led to glory by our only Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray, and for His name's sake. Amen.